When I was young and I was looking forward to the age of driving, I enjoyed looking at a lot of particular cars that I thought were sporty but of course affordable. Knew there was no way I was going to get a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or something like that, so obviously that was out of the realm of, of a hope and a dream there. Uh, but I'd start looking at cars and think, oh man, that would be, be neat. Uh, at the time, my aunt had got like a Ford Probe, and I was like, well, that's a pretty sporty looking car for something that's pretty affordable and cheap. Uh, then became one of my favorites was a Honda CRX, not the CRVs that you see today. Remember those little CRXs that are about that big, but they uh, were pretty sporty looking and all that. And I, I remember uh, wanting to get that, and then remember the big craze that happened a little while ago. Everybody had to have a Mazda Miata, right? I mean, that was just like everybody's midlife crisis car that uh, came along. And then everybody wanted a Hummer, and then the gas went to $4, and nobody wants a Hummer anymore. Uh, they were all over the place. Those H3s were all over, and then, uh, then that went out the window. How come young people today don't want a Honda CRX? <laughs> Or a Ford Probe. <laughs> I got online and looked at what I got on the Auto Trader and looked at a 1991 Honda CRX. I mean, that thing was was uh, had a tape deck, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was really awful looking. <laughs> and the reason why I bring that up is the reason why nobody wants those things now is because they were unsustainable. They were the thing at the time. Everybody wanted that particular product, that particular model, that particular car, that particular style, things like that, and they've become unsustainable. How many of you have heard of uh, Nebo worshippers today? You know, everybody's carrying around their bell idol, right? This is the point that Isaiah is making in, in this chapter, is uh, the things that you think are so important... Uh, you can't rely upon them. The things that you think are so valuable, they're going to pass away. Anybody heard of Datsun? I think anybody younger than me has no idea what a Datsun is. Right? <laughs> What's a Datsun? And those were pretty neat. <laughs> they're gone now. And that's what this is doing is here is God coming in the first two verses of chapter 46 of Isaiah are so important because what happens is we start looking at the things of the world as things that will save us, help us, or deliver us, when in fact it's those very things that are harming us. Here is Israel, and they are predicted by Isaiah they're going to go into captivity, and now he warns them and says, just because Babylon is going to be the world power, don't look to their gods or look to their way of living. And think that that's the way you ought to go. And think that is what is the way that you should live your life or the thing that you should put your trust in. First two verses are, are really quite humorous, especially if we lived in that day and time. It says, Bell bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols are on the beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. The very gods of Babylon here are pictured as going off on the back of some donkeys and some beasts of burden away from the city. Picturing God saying, 
Even Babylon is going to fall. And the very gods that they thought were so important that gave them their strength that they relied upon are false gods and now become a burden themselves. You can visualize the people having to carry their idols off as they go into captivity. It's almost a a vision of when Persia comes and destroys. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to carry your gods that you thought were saving you and causing for you to conquer the world. You're going to put them on your back and you're going to carry them into captivity yourself. And so what God does in these first really seven verses of chapter 46 is he wants them to recognize that false gods are always a burden. And this is going to become the message that we're going to talk about tonight. What we have to learn for ourselves is that the one who carries burdens is God himself. That idols are a burden. The very thing that we think is going to be our help, the very thing that we think is going to give us the comfort or pleasure or answer to life that is going to give us satisfaction, what we need out of this world, becomes the very thing that harms us. And that really is the nature of idolatry altogether. And Isaiah, in these last few chapters, has spent quite a bit of time talking about the nature of idols and warned his people, and a great message to us, to not believe the lie of idolatry, that the things of this world disappoint. They're unsustainable. It's why you might have something you really enjoy for a car now, but give it 20 years and nobody's going to care about that. And nobody's going to think your house is really awesome in 20 years. And nobody's going to think that any of the things that are here of a physical nature of this creation is wonderful in the future. It's going to pass away. It's unsustainable. And here is Babylon putting all of their hope in their idols. And the warning is to Israel, don't look at Babylon with all of its success, with all of its power, and with all of its wealth, and think that you should be like them. Because it looks like they've got it good. It looks like they're successful. When here is God saying, they're not going to be any better off. They're going to be judged as well. And the thing that we have to, I think, recognize that he lays out for us here is what happens every time is the thing that gives us help is the thing that always hurts. Isaiah's message has repeated that. But think about the truth behind that. We live in a society right now that thinks, well, uh, drugs and alcohol are going to ease my burden. You know, this is the way I'm going to deal with pain. This is the way to deal with suffering. I'm going to get away from my problems through various chemicals, various things like that. We live in a world right now where sexual morality is treated that way. Well, this is going to be the answer. This is going to be the thing that is going to give me my joy and alleviate my burdens. And what happens with all of these idols and all of these pursuits of the world is that they become scourges upon our lives. They become addictions, they become vices, and most notably, they're sins. And we think that these things are going to be the thing that saves, the thing that helps, that will quiet whatever pain that we think that we have within us. When in fact they become causes of pain altogether. Listen to what God says in verse 3 of Isaiah 46. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. 
I have made you, and I will bear you. I will carry, and I will save. And so here is God saying, don't look to everything else to be your help, to carry you, to give you what you think you should receive in life. God says, I will carry you. And I love the language in verse 4. He says, even to your old age, I will carry you. Even to your gray hairs, to your very last breath, God says, I will be with you. I will carry you. And it is a beautiful picture of God saying, I want to be the one that you turn to. And it's almost as if as the people of God, we feel like we're supposed to come to such a sense of spiritual maturity as if we don't need God anymore. Lord, thank you for helping me all the while in my novice beginning stages. But now I'm doing okay and I can stand on my own two feet. God doesn't want that. The amazing thing about God is he wants us constantly dependent upon him. I will carry you to your gray hairs. I will carry you to your very end. Even in your old age, I will carry you. And so often we can treat God as something as, well, we'll just speak to Him and use Him in the beginning. Or only during the difficult times. And God says, I will be with you every step of the way. I have borne you. I have formed you. I have made you. You are mine. And I want you to rely upon me and not rely upon anyone else. The problem is... The world makes all of the things around it look desirable. I think one of the reasons why we choose not to allow God to carry our burdens and to give our full reliance upon Him is that the world makes it look like they're doing great. They look like they're doing fine. And they don't have God. And they have wealth and they seem to have prosperity and popularity and power and all of these various aspects. And so because of that, we look at them and go, well, maybe they are on to something and we need to try that pursuit. Maybe if we plunged ourselves more into our careers or maybe if we plunged ourselves into spending more money or acquiring more possessions or whatever it is that crosses our mind that we think is going to be the thing that will deliver us. The problem is the world makes it look like these things help, but they don't. I mean, in the midst of your suffering, does your television really save you? In the midst of all of your problems, is that car washing away your troubles and solving the issue? And yet that's so often what we think will be the answer. Something in this world, some other person, some other object, some expense, that's going to make it all better. And God is saying, how can that possibly be? Even when we step into the sinful areas of our reactions or emotions, that doesn't solve our suffering either. Bitterness doesn't solve the suffering. Malice doesn't solve what's going on in our lives. And so whatever it is we think is the thing that will solve the problem, that will answer the question, that will now be satisfied, Isaiah says, no, it's not going to do it. And so it reminds us then that we cannot look to the things of this world longingly and think that they have the answer to the things. In fact, I would submit to you that the things that they're doing suggest a cry for help because what it is is a reflection of looking all over the place for the answer to that cry within. The filling of the void 
that I believe God has given to every single person, like Ecclesiastes describes. That we're trying to find satisfaction in these things. That we're trying to find meaning and value and purpose and reason for why we are here. And, and their pursuits in all of these things from sexual immorality to pursuing wealth or power or whatever it is, is simply a mislooking, a misstep of trying to find the true and living God, but they think it's the answer is going to be in these things. And so they plunge themselves into chemicals or plunge themselves into the ways of the world and the pursuits of the world. And what God is trying to do is express to Israel, you see Babylon and you see its gods. You're looking at the world around you and your temptation is to look at them and be just like them, to do the things that they are doing. And he warns them and says, I don't want you to do that. In fact, notice the the sad declaration that's made here in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him. From his trouble. Here is God saying, Do you understand how the pursuit of the world is such an insult to God? Because what God is showing them is, You've taken my blessings, you've taken the gold and the silver, and what do you do? He says, They turn it into idols. They fashion the idols, they bow down to it, they worship it, they carry it around, they set it there, and they expect that to deliver them. And here is, I think, the the, the massive miss is here is God blessing us. And he gives us all these various blessings physically and more important spiritually. And our tendency is to take those things and forget to worship the one who gave it to us. Instead, we make the joys of this life the ultimate goal. And it's a sad thing because I think that's exactly what you see like on every magazine cover in the world today. Yeah. The ultimate thing is beauty. The ultimate thing is sexual immorality. The ultimate thing is, you know, eating. The ultimate thing is, I'm trying to think of everything I've ever seen on the magazine cover that sits out there. That's the ultimate. Rather than appreciating what has been given to us, enjoying it, and letting that cause us to worship the one who gave it to us, we now make these things in this life the ultimate thing. We make having wealth the ultimate thing. We make having health the ultimate thing. We make beauty the ultimate thing. We make all of these things be what's the most important thing that we're going to attain to. And if we would just get there, then we would be happy. So we'll cryogenically freeze ourselves, uh, we'll shoot ourselves full of crazy things, and we'll live forever. Or we'll give up everything that is important in this world and try to accumulate all there is to accumulate in wealth. Or we'll try to find our joy in spending as much as we can spend. And we're missing what God is saying is, do you not understand that I've given you these things and you're supposed to find your relevance and your purpose and your joy in me? Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah. He said it this way, with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. 
I gave you these things. I gave you this wealth. I gave you all of these blessings. And in turn, instead of worshiping me, you made that the ultimate thing. You made that the place of value and that leads you to your own destruction. And of course, it's a good thing that that's not a problem today in our country. And Isaiah was very isolated from the problems of people placing a greater emphasis on wealth rather than God. You feel that Isaiah just could be standing here making the very same declarations. You're pursuing the wrong things. And how God is insulted when we choose to put our weight and emphasis and value and purpose in the ways and things of the world rather than in God himself. And so can you imagine as God cries to Israel and says, I will carry your burdens. I am the one who can save. I am the one that can help. And that becomes the hope that we need. And and then notice how God uses that as a point to draw the Israel back in so that they will worship him properly in verses 8 through 13. Verse 8 of Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Notice the picture now. God says, now remember, verse 8, recall, stand firm. Remember the things of old. Here is God saying, remember my covenant faithfulness. Remember all that I've done for you in the past. Remember how I delivered you. But notice what he calls them in verse 8. He says, now remember the former things of old. Remember and stand firm, you rebels, you transgressors. In verse 8. He does it again in verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. That's the problem with idolatry is we need the bell rung and the wake up call given to us. Don't forget what God has done. And God stands back and says, I am waiting for you to realize that your idolatry is worthless, that your pursuit of the things of this world has no value at all. And the thing that you are defining yourself by and the thing that you are valuing in your life. God just sits back and says, I'm waiting for you to see that I'm the one that can carry you, that I'm the only one that can help. And so God patiently waits for them and calls for them to return to them. And and the basis of that trust is said in verses 10 and 11, where he says there, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then he speaks of what he's going to do in destroying Babylon, calling this bird of prey from the east. And he says in verse 11, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. This becomes the hope for all the people of God. 
that God says when He does something, when He plans something, when He purposes something, He will do it. And this is why we can rely upon God to carry our burdens. This is the reason why we turn to Him. And this is why we must go to God with our pain and with our suffering and with our difficulties. It's because God accomplishes His plans and purposes. And there is not help anywhere else. Nothing else can help. No one else can help. No object will solve it. And that becomes what God wants them to understand. Stop being transgressors, his Isaiah's call. And recognize that God is patiently and faithfully waiting for us to observe and recognize that God will carry the burden and God will accomplish the things that he said. The reason we can put our hope in him, the reason we are to put our trust in him is he is the one who can do something about it. Listen to it there in in verse uh, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. He is the almighty God. He is the eternal God who says, I know from things from beginning to end. He is the one that we are supposed to put our hope in. He is the one that we are to rely upon. He is the sovereign God and his plans are always accomplished. That's to become hope for us. When all else fails, there's a recognition that God's purposes will always be accomplished. That becomes the the massive anchor for the people of God. Because remember what God has said. They're going to go through horrible suffering for their sins. They're going to be carried away into Babylon. They're going to go into captivity. Their city is going to be destroyed. And yet he's saying, you can rely on the fact that I have said something that I'm going to carry you through. And there will be a remnant of your people. And now you put your hope in that. And so through suffering and difficulty, through trial and challenge, we trust in God because his plans are always accomplished And he says that he bears our burdens, even to the very gray hairs of verse 4. Then you bring in verse 12, though, (laughs) how I feel the reality of that, and I suppose we all do. Here is God saying, I'll carry you, I'll help you, and we have stubborn hearts. He turns and says, "I, I am the God who knows all things, and I can carry you through, and I'm the only one who can do. And he says, stop having stubborn hearts. And what God is trying to get them to understand is these things have to have a purifying process to our lives. One of the things the New Testament observes over and over again and is a clear message by the prophets is that these things that we go through can have a purpose of refining. That that's what we need. We need difficulty and we are put through various things in our life and trials and suffering in our life so that we can move away from being stubborn and hard and become the people that God wants us to be. Here are these stubborn and hard. And he says, you're rebels and transgressors. And so off to Babylon you will go. But why were they to go to Babylon? It wasn't merely a punishment, but a refining to draw out of them the true people of God. People who would set aside their idols and set aside their sins and set aside their self-dependent thinking and start thinking about, okay, I am now going to trust in God. 
I will depend upon Him and not self. I will rely on Him and not self. And so this was done to see who is going to be my people. We see that happen in Job and we see it declared in James to count it all joy when we go through trials. And First Peter, which tells us that we go, are going to be refined and purified by fire, that these things happen and are allowed so that we can become the people that God wants us to be. It is a reminder to us that God can use any circumstance to bring about his own glory, even if that circumstance does not make sense. And you imagine reading Isaiah, how does this make sense? That God is going to use these things for a people for himself to be his holy people when he's going about destroying them. When he's wiping out the land, destroying the temple, destroying Jerusalem and carrying them all off into captivity. Does that look like that God is in control of these events? And does it look like that God is with his people? And does it look like that God is sparing them? And does it look like God is being merciful? And does it look like God is delivering? But here the message of Isaiah is, yes, he is. He is fully aware of this. He is exactly on top of this. And he is accomplishing his purposes, even though to the eye of the people of Israel, as all of this was falling around them, it would seem as God is not with us. This isn't the plan. Things have gone wrong. And Isaiah is saying this is exactly the plan. And you trust in the power and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. And that's what they're supposed to do. So he calls them, don't be stubborn in heart. Don't be stubborn in heart. Recognize that God is a faithful God and he keeps his word and he is patient with his people who wants to bear our burdens. And now verse chapter 47 lays it out like this and says, understanding that God is the carrier of your burdens and understanding that he is the only one that can save. He is the only one that can provide us our value, our purpose, our joy and satisfaction in life. Now, don't commit the same errors as Babylon. Chapter 47 is really a a, a chapter that describes the coming fall of the nation. He describes them as sitting in the dust. And taking millstones and being ground into flour. They're now going to be made to shame. Babylon is going to be no more. And so as a warning to them, chapter 47, verse 3, Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, His name is the Holy One of Israel. Here is God saying, I will deal with your enemy. I will deal with your problem. And so He warns them then and says, So don't be like them. Because they're going to be judged. And I think that's a a massive thought of what Isaiah wants us to get is, is why would we look to the world longingly and look at the way that they behave and think that that is a way we ought to go when God has warned from the very beginning judgment is coming to them. Judgment is coming for their actions. So don't look at the world and act like them. Come out from the world and be separate. 
this very text is kind of reused over in Revelation as he speaks of come out from Babylon and be separate in chapter 18. And the same idea is being laid out here. You're going to be taken into captivity, but don't mold yourself to the world. You know the faithfulness of God. You know that he is with you. You know he is carrying your burdens. So don't now be like everybody else out there. Don't follow in the ways that they follow. And so depending on the Lord, having true faith in God means not looking like the world and living like them. And it's a great challenge for us because we don't want to be different. We want to fit in. We want to be mainstream. And the challenges of calling sin to be sins in our world is only growing. And the more and more we will stand out as we proclaim the truths of God and as the world continues to go away from God. And we cannot live like them and we cannot behave like them. The call has always been by God. Yes, you live among a people, but you're to live separately. You can't live like them and you cannot think like them and you cannot behave like them. You are called to be different. You are called to come out. And what we'll look at is, I'm just going to notice three. There's there's three sins. There's a lot of sins that are laid out in chapter 47. I just want to observe three of them because Isaiah says, here's three things that Babylon is doing that's going to bring judgment upon them. And so Isaiah, tell the people, don't be like this. We can't be like the world in these three things. Notice verse 8. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Three massive sins to consider. Notice verse 8. He says, now listen to this, you lover of pleasures. That's not a problem at all. Uh Same exact issue in Babylon is the cry of our nation today. Find pleasure. It's all about you and your pleasure and how you need to be happy. And it's disturbing as much as the religious world plays upon that and uses God for the same thing. God is here to make you happy. I haven't found that verse yet. God's not here to make you happy because you and I are not God. If it's all about us, then we're God. He's God. And he warns them and says, don't be lovers of pleasure. Don't make that your all. And we're in such a society. Well, if you don't like it, don't do it. If it's an inconvenience, don't bother. If it makes you uncomfortable, don't do these things. And here is God saying, so do you love the Lord or do you love pleasure? What, what just makes your decisions? What moves your life? What becomes the calculation that every decision we make, whether it's a snap one or a long process, we go through that very process, and what is the deciding factor? And so often the deciding factor is, well, that just doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. 
That's not going to feel good. That's not going to be enjoyable. And he warns them and says, don't make your life about loving pleasure. It's not to be pursuing and seeking the things of this world. And so often what the world does is says, that's the goal of life. You've achieved it all if you've found pleasure. That's the goal. God says that's going to be judged. And consider what God is calling for us to do when you think about the words of Jesus when he speaks of things like the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field that Christ himself is supposed to be the treasure. That the ways of God are to be like this great precious pearl that is found in this field and you sell all that you have. You sell everything. You give it all up. Being a lover of pleasure is incompatible with being a lover of God. You can't do both. We cannot pursue the ways of the world and seek all of our desires and think that we're still a lover of God. And he's telling Israel, so don't be like Babylon. Don't look at the world because see what they're doing. It's all about pleasure. And that's a mistake. And that's a judgment that's going to fall upon them. And that's a warning that is now stands against them. Our goal is to find pleasure in serving Christ. To move pleasure from away from the worldliness, the selfishness of my flesh, my mind, my wants, my desires, and make the desire become Christ and Christ alone. That's the process. That's the sanctification. That's the pursuit. Taking these desires captive, submitting them to Christ and moving ourselves to find joy and pleasure in the ways of God. It's not only possible, it's a wonderful spot to be in to find the ways of God a joy. You think of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord talking about how perfect it is and pure and right. And David comes to a thought and says, you know, it's, it's sweeter than honey. It's better than anything else there is in this life. It's better than anything you can go put your hands on in this world that we think is so important and so useful to us. Because everything in this world is a dotson. It's going out. And who cares? The great thing of today is useless tomorrow. Those smart, wise people of today will be the fools of the future. And the ways of God is the thing to pursue. Do not be lovers of pleasure. Second, verse 8, who sits securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of, of, of children. Here is Babylon saying, nothing's going to happen to us. We're too strong. We're too mighty. We're too good. And, and, and nobody can get us. We're, we're too strong. In fact, notice how they set themselves up as God. In verse 8 he says, I am and there is no one beside me. You know how often Isaiah has used that of God himself? God has kept saying, I'm God and there's no one else. I am the rock, there is no other. He even did it back here just a few verses ago, said that he is the only one. Verse 9, 
I am God and there is no other. Notice what chapter 47 verse 8 said though. I am and there is no one beside me. God makes the declaration in 46.8. I am 46.9. I am God and there is no other. Man comes along and says, I am God and there is no other. Pride. Pride. And our actions reveal if we're setting ourselves up as God. All that matters is me. And decisions revolve around me. And I will do what I want to do. I think in great increasing popularity, we see it around us. The rules don't apply to me. The rules apply to everybody else. Everybody else has to follow the rules, but not me. Somehow I'm exempt. And that's pride. And we see that growing. Nothing else matters except me. All that matters is me. All that matters is my life. And the increasing selfishness is a reflection of the increasing pride. And how God teaches us, like in Philippians chapter 2, you don't think of yourselves. You think of others. We think of the ways of what God wants us to do. We look at 1 Corinthians 13, that love is about other people, not about ourselves. It's not love if it's self-driven. If it's about me, that's not love. If I'm acting for my interest, that's not love by any stretch of the imagination. And here is this declaration. We think it's about us. He warns them and says judgment is coming when we allow pride to be the motivator of our actions. And we allow self to be the reason why we make our decisions. And then, how about verse 10? You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. No one knows. No one sees Thinking we can sin without consequence. Not going to have any problems. There won't be consequences for my sins in this life. And there won't be consequences for our sins with God. The two lies of Satan. You can commit these sins and you can live for pleasure. And you can put yourself on the throne as God. But there won't be any consequences in this life for that. You'll be all right. You'll keep it all under wraps. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever see. You'll be fine. You can pretend to be a Christian. You'll look like a great on the outside while you allow all this blackness to be inside of you. And then they think it's going to be okay with God. When there's a judgment coming for this kind of behavior. Secure in our sins. Isaiah says, do not think that way. And how foolish we are to think that our sins will not catch up to us because they always do inevitably. Inevitably, we must stand before God. And inevitably, there will be a final analysis of the things that we've done in the flesh. Let me conclude it this way, and we'll we'll have the lesson done then. Basically, the question is, so what's the decision we're going to make? Isaiah has presented two ideas. Recognize if we trust in idols, that causes more burdens. You end up carrying your idol. That which you think is so valuable and the thing that you can rely upon, you actually end up carrying. When God says, I will carry you. God says, I will take your burdens. I will be the one to alleviate them. And think about how God describes that here in chapter 46. If I'm going to be with you to your gray hair, I will carry, I will save. And Jesus gives that very same offer. Come to me. You that are weary. Heavy burdened. I'll give you rest. 
takes the imagery of Isaiah and pulls it forward and says, I've come to deal with your burdens. I've come to be the answer, the solution to all of your life issues. Trust in the Lord then, because he is the one who rules over all things and his purposes are always accomplished. We can rely upon him because we know that he rules and therefore we can put our lives in his hands. That's the hope that we have. Hoping in something else, hoping in anyone else, simply leads to disappointment. And then number three, we turn away from the world's idols. We turn away from worldly thinking. The Apostle Paul said, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Instead of turning to the world and seeing what they do as the answer, we turn to the burden bearer. We turn to God who can take away sins. Let him carry you through your suffering. I am very grateful for the Lord who makes these kinds of promises. Because it's the only way that I endure anything that we have and anything that's yet to come. It's my hope in God that He writes all wrongs at the very end. And I don't have to worry about anything else in this life. I just depend upon Him. And He'll get me through today. And that's all that's necessary is today. We rely on Him. Nothing else can fix it. Only God can save. You pull your songbooks out. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus.